Welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to GDPR and all things privacy. This week, we're going to be talking about privacy by design, which, as you all know, is one of the fundamental building blocks of a good data protection regime. Now, I've always found privacy by design quite easy to understand at a high level, but actually a bit of a slippery concept and quite hard to formulate at a low level. So we're lucky to have in the studio today, Sam Busso, founder of Precognitive Inc, based out of Chicago, who's going to be talking to us about privacy by design, uh, what its constituent elements are, uh, and how to build privacy by design into your organization. So just to remind you that this episode of GDPR Now is hosted by me, Mark Sherwood Edwards, and the podcast itself is brought to you by This Is DPO, which you can find at this is dpo.co.uk. So, Sam, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me, Mark. Excited to be joining you today. No, pleasure to have you. Why don't you, uh, before we kick off talking about privacy by design itself, why don't you give us a bit of your background so people kind of situate you in some kind of context? Certainly. Um, so my name is Sam Busso. I'm the CEO and founder of Precognitive. Um, I've primarily worked in the technology sector for the past 13 years, um, mainly working with technology built for fraud prevention and risk mitigation, uh, but also for online advertising. Um, so obviously, we have to work within um, a lot of privacy regulations, including GDPR. Um, so I'm excited to be sharing about uh, sharing how we, we use privacy by design to help uh, address those various uh, regulations we have to deal with. Okay, understood. So why don't you why don't you kick off then? I mean, privacy privacy by design um, has been around for a while. Um, I think it was invented. What well, the concept was created? I think it was by Anne Kavukian, who's uh, from Ontario in '95, around about then. Um, it became kind of recommended practice generally by all and by regulators generally that people should adopt. Privacy by design. It became formalized in the GDPR as Article 25. People have to uh, provide uh, privacy by design and by default. Um, but why don't you just give us an overview of, of your, your as, as someone working in the, on the technology side of things, why don't you give us your overview on how you, how you came across it, how, how it's evolved for you? Yeah, so I, I came across uh, privacy by design, given some of the use cases we were working on, uh, and I'll certainly share more on that. You know, privacy by design itself is, is really a framework that sets out to help us as businesses build uh, systems and processes that have privacy guards built in, security built in. And it's really, uh, it's a way of thinking about implementing privacy into the foundation of a system or a process. Um, so there, there are seven principles of you know, privacy by design, but when I'm usually introducing this to a new team, I like to extremely uh, oversimplify the concept. And I, I generally say something along the lines you know, that assume all the data and information we're going to collect in this product is publicly visible. Anyone can see it. Um, or you know, another analogy might be, imagine you live in a, a densely populated city in a glass house. You have no curtains. We have no privacy. And when you start kind of thinking about it in that way, it, it certainly does create a sense of paranoia. But I, I think it helps to get everybody in the right mode of thinking. Okay. And, when, and once that happens, then what, what's the next stage after that? So 
great question. So, you know, once we've got everybody on board, it's it really looking at the use case of what we're building. Um, from there, there's a number of key areas you want to focus on. And if you do these correctly, um, they'll lend themselves into one another. So the, the first real kind of component uh, is focusing around the user itself. Um, so keeping the user in mind as you're designing, developing product, um, being very transparent, which is where we like to, to kind of use the glass house analogy, uh, and also being proactive up front in terms of how you're actually developing the system and designing it. Um, you know, there's, there's a common misconception I, I tend to see frequently in that to do privacy by design correctly, you're going to have um, lesser data as an outcome. So really looking at the data you're also uh, collecting and gathering and seeing how you can still get value of something that might be sensitive or potentially you don't want to hold on to without diminishing kind of the quality, right, of, of the analytics you can extract from that. Uh, another pillar here as well is kind of building in the end-to-end security. And that also then digs into things like um, embedding privacy into the data itself, uh, as well as, you know, privacy as a default setting. So when you look at these kind of holistically, what you're, you're really aiming to do is from the, the start, start looking at all these various points and developing um, your project plan and, and your product roadmap to carry all of this in mind. Okay, and if we, if we see privacy by design as the, the, the preferred stage, the preferred and more modern state, what would be practices from a historic stage which, which would not have affected uh, privacy by design? So historically, I think what we, we've tended to see from technology companies, right, is um, there was this kind of notion or, or mentality of collect any and all data that you would come in contact with. Um, we would collect data, you know, because one storage cost was cheap. And if it was available, somebody else might have usage for it, whether it's data science or marketing. Um, but I, I think this kind of approach has, has obviously proven to be wrong and created a number of issues, right? We've found um, organizations that uh, did find ways to monetize that data, they ended up selling it. While the, the initial intent during capturing that information was certainly not that, right? It just, it was there, it was available. Um, or those organizations then getting breached and, and having the data stolen. Um, I think the, the alarming bit about this too was, you know, a lot of the executives at, at some of these places weren't aware that they were in possession of this type of data. Um, so this is where GDPR, obviously, given the extent of um, data breaches we've seen, uh, you know, as it's come into prominence, has said, look, there are consequences for you know, how you manage this data and information. Um, so for a business to kind of think about, you know, how you build software differently now, there's a, a lot of liability and risk you can remove from yourself as an organization by implementing these processes up front and going through a privacy by design um, setup when you're, you're creating your product or even your business processes themselves. Okay. Understood. I think there's been a sh shift. Do I, I would look at there's been a shift it's at least in the GDPR, it may not which which GDPR applies and may not be quite the case in other parts of the world. For example, the CCPA isn't quite, isn't, well, 
doesn't seem to strike me quite have such a kind of radical approach to privacy as GDPR does. And what I mean is that some of the things which you might have called pre-GDPR as privacy by design elements are now kind of compulsory under GDPR. So, you know, under GDPR, uh, you've got to tell people what, what you're collecting. You've got to, you know, you should take them, you should only collect uh, the minimum amount you need and you have a purpose limitation. You can't use it for other purposes as a general rule and that kind of stuff. So some of what was privacy by design back when the concepts were initially developed has now been, at least for GDPR, subsumed by GDPR. But GDPR still expects people beyond the explicit rules that set out to apply privacy by design. Um, the difficulty I have, I'm sure I'm not the only one, is when I look at these seven foundational principles of privacy by design, which are uh, set out by Ankavukin back in the day, they are incredibly, not all of them, but a lot of them are pretty high level and kind of slightly wishy-washy. Um, and then how one then ends up applying them is the tricky element. And some of the terminology that gets bandied about, you can be, well, I recognize the words, but what does that mean? So I'll put the principles on the uh, on the show notes for those who haven't seen them before. But so first, first one is proactive, not reactive, preventative, not remedial. Okay, fine. Basically saying, build, think about it, build it in from day one. Uh, privacy as a default, okay, that, I understand that. You know, when the user first starts to use your product, your services, privacy is the default. They've got to opt in kind of way of looking at it. But then some of the kind of privacy embedded into design stuff, you kind of are kind of thinking, well, what does that mean in practice? So for you, for you, Sam, the kind of things you're working on, what, what kind of things does that actually mean in practice? Yeah, so that, this is a, a really great. Uh, I think principle, right? And we spend a lot of time when we're working on developing product, focusing on the embedded privacy. Um, I, I'm going to share a couple examples of of how you you embed privacy. You know, embedding privacy though, when you're looking at these seven principles, actually has a, a bigger impact because if if you embed privacy and you do it well, it also then decreases, um, you know the amount of work you may have to do in the security component. So if the data is, is not sensitive in any manner, your you know, level of uh, data encryption, security, et cetera, um, your scope is smaller, right? So if I don't have anything that's actually PII in my system uh, and all the data is anonymized, my security burden is much lower. So you know, embedding privacy into the data is one area um, I've spent a, quite a bit of time working on. And to give you an example of this, um, that's real world, you know, one of the, the platforms I, I was involved in building was an advertising um, technology platform. Um, so what we were doing was uh, when somebody would click on a advertisement on their iPhone, for example, for a video game that was a mobile game, and then download it and launch the mobile game, we would help connect the attribution. So it would say this um, you know, click on ABC website, resulted in a user downloading whatever video game on their phone and then launching it. So to do that, we would collect some forms of identifiers, right? And the problem with that was, 
depending on the type of identifier you are collecting, um, you know, you could be in, in violation of GDPR. You could be collecting things that are considered PII, like IP address or user email. Um, so when we designed the, that system, we wanted to make sure that, one, the data couldn't be abused, um, that it served its use case and let us create this attribution we were looking to do. Uh, and then, um, furthermore, that you know, from a, a security perspective, if one of our partners or anybody else had an issue, this data couldn't be used by criminals for, for anything bad. Um, so if you think about some of the data we would collect here, you know, we didn't use any form of persistence. So the concept of cookies or leaving data on a consumer device, um, we didn't apply. But what we did do was look at things like device characteristics, for example. Um, what's your browser user agent? Um, what is the screen size? Things along uh, those lines that gave us uh, kind of a fuzzy match, if you will, on a given user device. Um, the other thing we did, which I think is a great example of privacy by design, we, we identified the IP address, um, obviously is, is considered now you know, PII. So how do you make sure that you're not storing the IP address, but still getting uh, the information you need out of it? And this is a good example of embedding privacy in that um, we said, okay, we need the IP address, but what do we need it for? We actually need it because we want to pull back some geolocation data um, uh, in terms of where this device is um, using a, a service we were connected to, but we don't need the IP address afterwards because we've already retrieved the, the geodata we need. So what we did in that case was retrieve the geodata immediately, append that to the data, and then you hash the IP address itself. So it's a one-way encryption that can't be reversed back out. In addition, the data that we were collecting, when we created this identifier of ours to, to do these matches, we would use that uh, portion of that hashed IP and some statistical data around the device itself. Um, and devices and, and IPs are obviously constantly on the move, so those IDs actually had a built-in shelf life, which was another really interesting thing. Um, our use cases you know, warranted that we would make these connections generally within a few minutes uh, of a user clicking, downloading, and starting an app. So the, the, the identifier we needed didn't need to last for that long. Um, and we built that into the algorithm itself. So when we created these matching IDs uh, to, to make this connection between the, the ad click and the, the app launch, we only needed them to last for a few minutes. So at the actual algorithm level, um, we were able to build this algorithm and these identifiers so they would be useless within around a 24-hour period. Uh, they had a natural rate of decay in them. They had zero PII data in them, but they served the purpose that they needed um, and, and really did uh, not collect anything sensitive on the user whatsoever. Okay, that's okay. That's interesting. I mean, I think the time, I think the time element, the built-in decay, is a really interesting angle. It is, and it, you know, being able to do something like that, um, you know, is, is a great example of, of again embedded privacy. But if you think of of the impact this has um, for you as an organization, it's actually uh, valuable from from many regards, right? I, I I know now that even the third party I'm working with cannot take this data and abuse it um, because after so long of a period of time, it's naturally going to stop working. 
Um, you know, if somebody was to compromise one of our database systems, um, all of the data they had in there was anonymous and would lead them back to, to, to nothing, right? Um, rough geographic locations at most, but certainly nothing in there that would pinpoint back to an individual. So having that and being able to do that early on gives you so much uh, in terms of just uh, ability to govern your data very easily, uh, reducing your compliance um, you know, uh, scope, reducing your, your security scope. And it was all done at a, a very early stage and it had significant cost savings in the long run. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and historically, ad tech has been a big uh, consumer of personal data, PII data. So that is a kind of in interesting approach to it. And what other, are there other use cases that you, maybe ad tech, maybe not ad tech, that you would think of good illustration or the embedding privacy into, into the overall design? Yeah, we've worked on some other um, larger systems, uh, more recently, obviously, in, in the fraud prevention space. So um, products we, we run now, um, we actually have three uh, larger systems that we run, and they, they work with one another. Um, some of them collect information such as, as device data on a user, um, and that's one system of its own, uh, on its own. Um, there's another system that connects and, and captures user behavioral data. So this is things like, um, what are you actually looking at from a product perspective, or how many times have you visited a website, and, and uh, how do you navigate through it, what do your mouse movements look like? And lastly, a decisioning piece that, that tries to um, take in some data and, and make a fraud decision on it. If you think about a system like that, you know, the data we, we are collecting in, in um, this sort of setup does have a lot of, of things that you would consider private uh, and sensitive. So being able to um, you know, show what a consumer is looking at over an extended period of time across, um, you know, uh, e-commerce, retail, et cetera, um, you have to be very cautious in terms of what you're collecting, how it can be used, and who has access to it, um, and even how your partners are using that data. Um, so another great uh, example where you can embed privacy, um, in this kind of example, what we had done was silo out all the data uh, into different systems that we knew would, would potentially be problematic if we commingled it. Um, so we took all the data that we would gather from a device and we created one product, um, one set of databases that would house that information. Um, and we went down to the level of making sure all the data in there was anonymized. So there's great data in there. It's very rich data. Uh, it tells you uh, a lot of information about a given device and the internet connection itself, but it never persists an IP address. Um, it follows similar practices in terms of where it gets what it needs from the IP and then and drops it completely. Conversely, you know, capturing user behavioral data uh, is something that uh, is valuable from a fraud prevention perspective, but from uh, GDPR compliance, you have to be very cautious with how you're handling that data. So again, there, you know, we rely on, on things like session identifiers. Um, so it's tied to a given tab on a browser um, and it has a very short life, right? It never carries any sort of information that points back to a user. So from what you're saying is you're saying it's a good design principle to if you've got to split the use the information you're collecting about the user 
and put it into different buckets effectively. Now, once you've done that, do you then keep them as different buckets or do you then combine them into a kind of uh, a, a, a different, uh, a separate database which holds them and has it holds the same information in a, in a different, in a slightly modified form? Yeah, it really depends on on the data itself, the use case, and, and the sensitivity of the data. Um, you know, if you are handling data that's um, going to be classified as sensitive data or can have PII in there, you know, you're going to want to look at uh, potentially siloing some of the data into uh, different systems and, and really looking at where does that data need to live. You know, um, one of the things we see frequently, I think that's kind of a security and, and privacy oversight is you might ingest a piece of data from a server uh, but you actually only need it well downstream in another process. Um, so, you know, what we've seen in the past is people storing the data in both places, but uh, they don't have a use for it uh, where it's being received. And that's generally uh, where you might see some sort of breach or compromise happen. Um, so I think segment, segmenting the data out, uh, classifying data by, you know, is certain data more um, sensitive or requires additional security, um, where does it actually need to live? How long does it need to, to exist? Um, you can then um, you know, set up strategies to work around that data. Um, and in many cases, when you're going through a privacy by design um, approach, you can automate all of that into the, the, the uh, process in terms of how the system functions. So if it is doing things like aging off data, um, you know, if the data itself doesn't have a decay rate or you can't build one in, um, you can have those um, siloed systems have different SLAs, if you will, on the data in terms of when they purge it out. If there's sensitive data that you need to separate apart, such as the example I was giving um, with with you know, some of our fraud systems that we work on. I understand. Uh, yeah, and it, it makes perfect sense. Not being a database expert, it does sound kind of counterintuitive because, you know, what we read in the press is kind of, you know, build a data lake, you know, the more data you've got, the more, uh, the better you will be. And, and, and also if you work in large companies, a lot of the problems they have typically is, particularly the required other companies over time is, you know, separate systems, separate databases and trying to establish one version of the truth. But you're, you're saying that there's a kind of, that may be, that may, that may be a, a, a simplification which works in, non-personal data, where it's PII, there may be advantages in making, in effectively siloing things up because it, not only is it a form of data minimization, but it's a, a form of additional protection against breach. Is that it? Yeah, and I think they, they go hand in hand, right? Obviously, minimizing data is um, something you want to practice up front, but there's going to be instances where you do have something you know, if, if you're a bank, you need to know the customer's name and address, right? We're, we're not going to get away from that um, uh, necessity to, to know who the customer is. So you're going to have to store that information. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the data is, is can't be used for analytics. But I think, you know, being able to do things like field-level encryption, for example, or um, the identifiers that are used to kind of link certain pieces of data, separating those out into different databases. Um, you're, you're able to, to basically uh, make it more challenging for somebody to uh, obtain that data and putting the most sensitive data 
or siloing it out elsewhere um, lets you then govern things like analytics data separately from PII data. And I think that's this is one of the areas where you see now it's kind of commingled. Your marketing team wants to see that that you know, maybe demographic data, location data, whatever it may be, um, but they don't really need to know who the customer is. They don't need to know their name or their address. Um, so this is where you can essentially um, leverage siloing of, of sensitivity of data um, to where the stuff that you've determined is usable for things like this and not very sensitive people can access, but then you have um, a very limited scope or, or number of people that can access things that are PII. Um, right now, we tend to see it's generally just commingled, right? It's a database that has everything about the consumer in there, um, as well as, as stuff that's being used by teams for marketing, whatever it may be. Um, when in practice and, and when you're setting this up, you, you want to make sure there's some separation there in the data sets. Understood. And when you talking about your kind of client, your, your, you know, your customer base at the moment. So when you go and you, well, here's two questions actually for you. When you go and talk to them about, and, and you make these kind of points, um, do people go, is a, is a certain amount of resistance because they well, actually, we don't want to separate that. We want to lump it all together and, you know, we want to run it, run some kind of AI over it and see what kind of connections it, it brings up one kind of thing. And, and, and following on from that, and this is the second question, what are the, what are the kind of uh, typical, uh, standard kind of, the most common kind of pushbacks and, and, and misunderstandings you, you have when, when you go and talk to your, to your clients about, about privacy by design? So the first question in terms of um, what are some of the, the pushbacks and do we see much pushback? I think the how long a company has been around tends to influence that. So older organizations that have been around and have done things for a certain way, it's much more difficult for them to make this shift now because all of the systems are already built. They already function in a specific way. So to, to move it to a privacy by design approach is a substantial effort um, just from a technical and cost perspective for them to to kind of change how they're operating. Um, generally speaking, newer organizations that are, are kind of starting now when GDPR already exists, um, it's a much easier conversation to have and much easier to implement because you're doing it as you're, you're building the business or you're building the systems. Uh, so I, I certainly notice there's a difference in who adopts this and, and how quickly uh, based on just you know, how long they've been around as a business. Um, if they have so much legacy data and systems built up, it's a much harder uh, transition to make. Some of the pushback we get to answer your second question is uh, there is this kind of thought that, you know, I'm not going to be able to do certain type of analytics or, or whatever it is. I'm losing insight into um, uh, my consumer by doing this. And that's really uh, an, an inaccurate statement. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of times where we're having these conversations uh, and this comes up, um, you'll ask for an example of what, you know, uh, somebody is trying to do. And they'll say, I want to know, um, you know, where do customers, uh, you know, what are they buying the most of or whatever it may be? What's the demographics or the location that a customer is coming from? And, you know, for, the, for these types of metrics and analytics, you still don't need the PII data there. 
right? You need to know um, very high level information uh, to be able to do this. There's very few cases where you find anonymizing or not collecting um, um, PII and is going to impact you. And they're generally around like, how do you actually know who your customer is? Of course, you need to store some data about your customer to know who they are, if you're going to ship them an item or, or mail them something. Um, but I think that goes back to where should that data live? You know, should that live in the same database that you're running analytics queries off of um, and that's accessible for, for anybody in the company? Or should the analytics team have all the data but have it hooked up to a unique identifier? And then when they know who they, they're actually going to target for a certain campaign or whatever it may be, um, say an email campaign, uh, you know, they send back just that anonymous identifier, a token, if you will, uh, that can get translated into the email that are being sent out. So, you know, you can still achieve this privacy, um, the separation of data, minimization of data, and not lose anything from a business perspective. Okay, so I think there's two points there. You, you were saying for 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 the, for a segmentation, a market segmentation, you really don't need to know individual details. With whole nature segmentation is you, you're you're clustering people. So whether it's 52 people or 72, you don't really care. It's, it's whatever number number is in there. And then you within the business, you're actually you okay. So the company as a whole has the PII, but actually you've you kind of segmented it and. Planning data minimization. So only those, only the, the bits of the company, the one that's going to use that, needs to know who that particular user is. So if it's serving a specific ad to a specific person, at that point you need to have some way of matching uh, ad ad person on a one to one basis. That's kind of what you're saying. Correct. And you know, I think the examining the use case itself and, and what what's the desired outcome. Most of the use cases or scenarios people describe and say, you know, I think approaching, you know, not collecting X data will, will impact us here. When you really dig into what somebody is trying to achieve, you'll find in, in a vast majority of cases, you can still come up with a workaround um, that gets them all the information they need, but um, doesn't require you to collect you know, necessarily, an, or, or persist and keep for long-term um, data that might be sensitive or, uh, you know, could pose a risk and constitute PII. Okay, and then coming around to where we were right at the beginning, so let's say if you get hired by a company that's been around for a long time, as you mentioned, well, well there's clearly changing their practices is difficult. Um, if it's a new company, it's easier. But actually letting, putting aside new company, old company, and so it's a particular project uh, you get involved in right from day one then. And so you're going to apply, um, uh, this, you know, the seven, you're going to apply privacy by design uh, right right from day zero. Would you would you then approach, then would you kind of stick the seven foundational principles of privacy by design in the kind of, on the board and draw everybody's attention to them? And uh, let's say it's a group of data engineers, software engineers, people from that kind of background don't, don't necessarily have a come from a, a privacy background, but are good, you know, good engineers. How would you then set about getting them to think in a privacy by design way, right, right from the foundational level? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, I generally, again, like to, to kind of set them up and say, um, 
you know, to, to look at everything that we're going to be collecting and processing and work under the assumption that this data is going to be visible to everybody. Okay, and that's easy. and you said that at the beginning. Okay, so it's going to be visible to everybody. And then what follows? What follows from that? Is it is a bit like don't put anything in an email they're not prepared to see on the front of the New York Times? Is it one of those? Therefore, we've got to have a good reason for having it. If if you don't need it, um, let's make sure we're not collecting it. And then there's also going into product specifications, right? So when we start to document. You know, uh, a specific product, what it's, what purpose it's serving, what data it needs to collect. Um, we go through that data then and, and look at it and say, okay, do we actually need this specific piece of data? Um, can we, you know, if it's something again like an IP address, why do we actually need the IP address? We want the geolocation data. Well, let's get the geolocation data when we first see the IP, store the geolocation data, but drop the IP address altogether, right? So you can look at, at, uh, the data you're defining and go through it and say, okay, is this really the piece of data we need if, say, it's a piece of PII, for example, or are we trying to derive something from this? And if, if it's the latter, let's derive it up front and never store this information. Um, so you can go through as you're, you're building out the product, you're defining data and really audit the data in real time and always keeping in mind, you know, is there an issue if this, this, this gets breached or leaked down on the internet? Uh, or if people can see it. And if you have to stop and thinking about it and say, yes, there is, I don't want, um, you know, Mark's name and address leaking online, um, then we need to ask ourselves, do we actually need the name and address? Uh, is there something else we're trying to infer from it? Can we get it without storing the name and address? Uh, and if we really do need the name and address, where should that live? Does it need to be in the web server that's collecting the information? Is it further downstream, um, you know, to where, uh, we need it for a certain period of time, and how long should that data exist? So really going through and defining what's the purpose of each piece of data? Do you actually need it? Uh, and furthermore, does that data, uh, is it PII and, and collectively with other information, does it point back to an individual? And if it does, how do we still get the value we need out of it uh, and ensure that you know we minimize or anonymize it in some way? Um, so getting into that kind of routine and that process of thinking, um, both between product owners and engineering, is an iterative process, but it's something I think that's really important um, to get everybody obviously on board and and make sure you're doing this correctly. Okay, and, and on the iterative basis uh, point, do you then come back, okay, took us six months, we built it, we've now run it for 12 months. Do you then schedule a, okay, this is how we feel it's going to work. From the, I mean, I'm sure someone's reviewing it from an, maybe an ROI perspective, but from a successful privacy, was this a successful privacy design? Is it meeting its privacy objectives? Do you then come back in 12 months after after business, you know, after BAE, after business as usual, whatever it is, whatever time it is, and then re-examine and say, say like, and kick the tires on, on the machine, make sure it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. We do. Um, we obviously do that uh, while we're building as well and testing. So very iteratively to to see, um, you know, is the data that we're sacrificing on causing any sort of impact? Um, is there anything we're collecting we didn't think we were? Uh, and in some cases, um, during some of those earlier stages when you're auditing, you might find you've taken great steps, for example, and 
the design of, of a database and what data you're going to collect, but you might have some log files on the server that are collecting IP and, and storing them um, when you don't have them anywhere else and you made an effort not to collect it. So you'll also find some things that are um, maybe side effects of what you're doing where you thought you weren't collecting data, but it's inadvertently being collected somewhere. So making sure you audit that process as well. Um, I have seen instances where the, the teams did a great job building uh, you know, an amazing uh, product and they followed privacy by design principles, uh, but still inadvertently somehow were capturing data they, they didn't know about. Um, you know, server logs are a great example and how they were being stored. Uh, but then while they were going back through and auditing and, and looking at um, you know, what information was actually being collected, those types of observations were made and, and corrections made to the setup. Over a, a longer period of time, though, you know, uh, when you're looking at building something new like this or putting a new product up, I think that cycle needs to happen quicker than, than the 12-month period. Um, you generally want to look at it every couple of months, especially um, while, while things are still in flight and changing in the product and it's just going live uh, to, to make sure that um, it meets all the business requirements, you know, it's meeting your privacy objectives, uh, and furthermore, just really getting a sense of now that it's up and running, um, is what we're collecting and what we say we're collecting true. Um, you know, if we are saying we're going to purge data in, in X weeks, is that purge process actually happening? So um, there's there's certainly a uh, follow-up to doing this, but you can minimize how much of that is needed by how you do the initial design. If you're never storing anything sensitive, if you're always anonymizing as data comes in, if there's built-in decay rates on data, things like that, um, you know, and you can show those controls are in place, you don't have to go back as frequently to check. And, and uh, you know, if it's in the foundation, it's in the foundation. It's a pretty safe place to be. Uh, okay, understood. Well, look, that, that's really helpful, Sam. I think that's bringing us uh, close to, or bringing us to time. Um, I don't mean, there are a lot of kind of uh, engineers and other people who are interested in, uh, you know, privacy by design as a practical application. Are they good? Are they good places they should be looking at for this kind of information? Should they be watching, looking at your website for updates? What would you recommend? There are a number of great resources online for um, looking at privacy by design. For those that are unfamiliar, um, I, I would start with some general, um, just, uh, I think, uh, articles that are out there on the web. I can certainly share some links. Um, and then there's, um, there are some books as well. Okay, Sam, I'll, I'll get those links and the recommended books, and I'll put them on the show notes for those who want to follow up uh, on those specific okay. issues. And these are not our links, by the way. They're actually just like uh, articles that I think are, are good. Um, Intros to privacy by design. Okay, well, you know, all, all, all the better. Sam, that was really helpful. I'll put your contact details up on the show notes if people want to get hold of you or want to get hold of Precognitive. Um, but thanks a lot for taking part. That brings us to the end of this episode of GDPR Now. We have a, oh, just a trail, we have a forthcoming podcast on class actions becoming bigger and bigger issue, at least in the UK, and particularly uh, a recent case which is going through the courts, Richard Lloyd against Google, uh, where the damages being claimed are £3.3 billion. Yeah, you heard that right, £3.3 billion. 
uh, where the nature of what constitutes uh, claimable loss for breach of GDPR is evolving substantially, and you may not even have to show any actual loss. So look out for that uh, pod- forthcoming podcast on class actions. Um, if you have any issues you like addressed or questions answered, please send them to info at this is dpo.co.uk. Equally, if you'd like to be on the podcast, please let us know. Contact details and other relevant information will be available in the show notes.